Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit, and my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Thanks, Alec, for coming on to our show. And as we as we both know, you're an executive chef at uh, a very prestigious uh, workplace. Yep. And so two people out there who are not aware of who you are, your stories, your journey, how did you end up here currently as an executive chef, which is a very prestigious rank and a vocation. Could you tell us about your background and what led you here? Sure. Uh, my name is Alec Lipschitz. I'm 32. I'm an executive chef in the city. Grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs, uh, the main line. Lived in Florida for quite some time, eventually left undergrad in Florida to come back to culinary school in the city. Uh, got a job with the company while in culinary school and then uh, worked my way up at one, one single account to executive chef. That's awesome. So Alec, I think it, it's pretty cool that now today's age with Netflix and a lot of uh, chefs being put on a pedestal. So contrary to before, now there's rise of celebrity chefs, you know, Gordon Ramsay, Anthony Bourdain, RIP, and a lot of other chefs like Dave Chang from Netflix shows. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of us in a lot of culture and society nowadays, we understand what chefs are and we understand it's a very prestigious position, comes with a lot of work, uh, similar to other like prestigious out there. But most of us are unaware of the exact work ethics and a lot of stories that uh, pour behind the kitchen, what actually goes behind the kitchen and what are the transition look like. And of course, we do know that you have to go through a culinary school before becoming a chef. So would you mind tell us a little bit about the stories and what happened and what it was actually like? Sure. Let me just correct you right there. You do not have to go to a culinary school to be a great chef. Uh, I work and know many, many chefs who just work their way from the bottom. A, a great chef can come from anywhere. There, there's no one path to being a great chef. My sous chef right now never stepped a day in school and he's fantastic. He started when he was like 13 as a dishwasher became a prep, became a line cook, now he's my sous. There, there's no one path. I went to culinary school, but that, that does not make me any different from any other chef who didn't. Like, we, we all kind of find our paths. And I think that's one of the things that, like, is beautiful about what we do. There's no, you don't have to go to Harvard, have to get your MBA, and that's the only way you're going to get the job in the kitchen. That's, well, it's a beautiful vessel for us to learn and grow off each other because we all have different cultures, different backgrounds, different upbringings, and I think that's, like how chefs and restaurants grow and kind of become, develop their identity, become what they are. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, I was uh, at UNF. We can call it a B-rate college on the beach in Florida. I uh, got a scholarship there from high school. So it's kind of, I was just kind of doing what I thought I was doing. I got a scholarship. It was cheap. I'd go to a school, go to college. It beats not going to college at the time. And then I just kind of wandered around academia, mostly partying, mostly just kind of hanging with my friends, hanging at the beach. And then one day it was like, how many days am I going to skip class to cook for my friends before it's going to take me to realize that I should be developing this? You know, if all I want to do is cook, maybe I should be putting my life into it. Maybe I should be developing it. And then most I grew up in the main line in Philadelphia. All my friends were just graduating undergrad and they were moving back to the city. So I figured leave Florida, kind of leave that lifestyle behind me. I needed a change, needed to get up, get on my feet, stop getting fucked up every single day. Mm -hmm. uh, left Florida, came back to Philadelphia, took out a humongous student loan and enrolled my ass in culinary school. 
That's awesome. You mentioned that you were cooking at for your friends in yeah. Florida. So yeah. were you uh, cooking in as a child or was this a thing that you found in Florida? When was kind of your first interest? Food in has always been huge in my life. Uh, my mother, one of the best things she ever did was made sure every night, no matter what, we had a big, well-balanced meal, always protein starches, salads, bread, like food was kind of always the central hub of our family. One of four siblings. And that was like, everyone's always running around, everyone's going crazy, but food was kind of always the, uh, I guess, the nucleus of our family. It's kind of what binded us all together. And even like, my mom, as I grew up, got a little sick, so she wasn't as like physically able to do as much as she wanted to when she got sicker. So like, as a kid, she instilled the love for food in me, and then wasn't able to provide the food physically, so then I started, like, I had the love for it, and I had the want to eat great food all the time, mm -hmm. so I kind of started developing, learning how to cook myself, and then all my friends would come over, and it just kind of snowballed into me wanting to eat with friends more, we, me wanting to cook more, then, like, it just mm -hmm. kind of builds upon itself, and then come college, I found myself cooking for all my friends all the time. Mm -hmm. Everyone would come over, I'd make a huge pot of jambalaya, or a giant dish of pasta, and, like, when I was a kid, the cooking was the nucleus of our family. Kind of in college, my cooking became the nucleus of the friend group. It kind of became mm -hmm. the thing that got everyone to gather around. So everyone would come over. So, you know, we were never alone. There was always something going on. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like my friend group became the family. And I don't know, I guess in a weird way, I became my mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I think many of us and just people in general they gravitate towards cooking for different reasons yeah and not just cooking any activities there's there's an intrinsic drive and the motivation right yeah so what do you think about cooking that particular about food in particular that drove you and gave you that passion to cook for your families or your friends who eventually evolved and became your new family there's a couple of things uh one of the things i still love about cooking to this day it's the instant gratification you do something and you do it by yourself and then you get to immediately see the effect of that. It's like some jobs out there, you're at a desk all day, you work all day and yeah, in the end of the quarter, you see your profits were up. With me, I spend all day making food, I get to put it on a plate, I get to give it to you and I can watch you enjoy it. I get to immediately see the fruits of my labor. My, as a chef, our currency is happiness. We deal in happiness. If I do good, I make more people more happy. When I do bad, less people aren't that happy. And I love that. It's like the immediate effect and it's the fact that like, sure, I make money. Like you have to make money at a job, but I get to reap the rewards of actual for tangible happiness. So that's like something I absolutely love about it. That's why I love cooking for my friends. I get to come out with a bunch of bowls, give it to everybody, watch the smiles, hear them tell me how great I am. I'm a tremendous narcissist. So when I give you food, if it's good, ideally, you tell me I'm great. Mm -hmm. So like as a narcissist, it's like the best thing ever. Mm -hmm. I get to constantly, when I do good, I, it's like you get the immediate pat on the back from it. So I think from my standpoint, love it. Mm -hmm. And it's an emotional reaction, not just a money transaction, but you get to physically see or emotionally feel their reaction to your good food absolutely and it sounds like it kind of becomes an experience right like it's not just food you're cooking for someone but like you said it's the nucleus of your family nucleus of your friends but the experience that you're creating in some ways absolutely you, you get to manufacture an experience you really do it's like you're sure there's a product in it of the food but you're 100% right like we get to like make an experience that ideally people enjoy you do. You get to kind of make your own bubble of happiness for however brief of time. 
But yeah, like you and your team put all this effort to it and then you get to see the actual joy that you guys were allowed to create. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a fucking drug. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like when you get to actually see the happiness that you caused, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, that sounds amazing. What do you think are the biggest components or kind of when you're strategizing how to creating a dish or creating an atmosphere for specific uh, customers? Just things that you kind of think make a big difference in the culinary experience? I think it's all about comfort. I think it's all about food, atmosphere, vibe, putting people at ease. Now, there are some fine dining places out there that aim for this pristine perfection but honestly, I don't think that's what people at their court want. Mm-hmm. People want to be relaxed. They want to be attended to, but they, they want to be set at ease. And I, I do the same thing with flavors. I want flavors that take you somewhere happy. I don't want something that's so complicated. You look at it and you like feel awkward hitting it with a fork because it's like punching a painting. You don't want to like you don't mm-hmm. want something to be so pristinely beautiful that it's like you know you don't want to eat it. I like food that makes you. It takes you somewhere. It makes you happy. It reminds you of something that previously brought you joy. It's something that is pleasant to look at, but also pleasant to devour. Mm-hmm. I kind of just go for something that makes people happy. You know, simple, mm-hmm. simple little joys. Like that pasta I made the other night. It's as simple as they come, but it's just, it's carbs. It's the umami of the Parmesan cheese. It's soft. It's warm. It's just, it's these simple pleasures mm-hmm. that your body and your brain just naturally associate with happiness. So that reminds me of so all three of us. I many people are aware of who Dave Chang is. So Dave Chang has become this huge phenomenon, and he's a celebrity chef. He's the head of the Momofuku Group, yeah, yeah. who obviously owns a noodle shop, and he used to work for very pre- uh, prestigious restaurants. And his show and his mantra of cooking, which is called Ugly Deliciousness, yeah, yeah. which alludes to your point <laughs> exactly. of the fact that because he's he's experimented and he's create countless this upscale fine dining this this pristine uh, perfect dishes before but i realized of course people come to those like five course 400 dollar meal for experience the, yeah. the ambiance the plating the food the, the the facade of this this pristineness but i think he eventually and a lot of chefs like yourself realized that there's two different levels of experience one's on the surface level which is the ambiance that the price of plating that you pay for and there's a the deeper level of experience which is your homeness right Exactly. Because, of course, like a lot of scientific research show that memory, nostalgia are associated with smell and taste. Yeah, right? Those are the overlapping. And that's why Dave Chang, he tried to achieve that experience through connecting and bringing you back into your happy place like you are doing. So in that sense, and I think a lot of us would agree that cooking is in a way like the epitome of creativity process. And I want to tie back to our previous question from culinary experience, the school experience. Yeah. So how did culinary school help you fine-tune or uh, fine-craft your creativity process? Was it liberating? Could you tell us more? Incredibly liberating. Um, That's one of the best things about culinary school is the complete freedom you get. I think so, like I was talking about, there's different avenues. You could work your way up in the industry from nowhere and get to the same place as if you went to culinary school. And I wouldn't say that the teachers at culinary school are going to teach you anything different than your chefs on your path up from the bottom would teach you. But what culinary school does that I think is amazing is it's three or so years of consequence-free cooking. You're not at a restaurant. So you can come in, you can waste their product, you can experiment. You're not fucking with someone's food cost when you go in and you, you 
try some screwball idea that you think might be great and you end up wasting three ducks, no one's going to fire you for that because you wasted three of his dry chef's dry aged ducks. It's like, it's three years where you can completely just fire off everything that's in your brain, try anything, shoot for the stars, really develop who you are. And that's another thing. You're not bound to following the desires of who you're working for. You can really kind of do whatever you want and kind of mold yourself as opposed to having someone else mold you. So what does culinary school, kind of the structure of it kind of look like? Like you mentioned that you have free autonomy to kind of make what you want, but is it kind of like a lab where you just go in and cook or is there like generally a like a lesson and then an assignment that you're like cooking through or how does that there's both Uh, some classes are completely like um lecture classes just like the teacher gets up there talks for an hour that's the class most of them most of the kitchen classes are either two four hour weekly classes or one eight hour weekly class and a lot of times the way they're structured is like day one will be a couple hours of lecture, maybe an hour or two of prep if it's going to be something that needs to sit overnight. And then the next day you'll get in and just get right to production. Mm-hmm. And then the eight hour class is obviously it's the same thing, but just in one block. Mm-hmm. Um, structurally, like the way you'll, you start off with basic skills classes and by school we had skills one, skills two, skills three. It was like the Skills one was mostly like knife cuts and like animal butchery. Skills two was kind of more like the mother sauces, kind of fundamental stuff like that. And then that's kind of your first semester and a half is like that stuff. And then you get into like a classical European cuisine class, international cuisine, regional American. And what they do is they'll kind of go over certain regions and be like, today we're going to do Central America. The lecture will be like kind of certain foods from different Central American countries. And then he'll hand out assignments and be like, all right, this group is going to do Mexico, this group is going to do Puerto Rican cuisine, This, and then he'll have either menus or he'll be like, we went over 20 things, I want you to make as a group a menu of four or five things and then present it to me. So it's very wide open. He'll mm-hmm. be like, we talked about croquetas and empanadas and arroz con pollo and all this stuff. I want to see, I want to see the components of that dish on a super high-end plate. Five to eight components, different things. So you kind of like get to write your own journey. You get to like look at the the 20 things you were taught yesterday, pick the five that you want to do your version of and then make it happen. So yeah, you get a lot of creativity. You kind of, it really, for me, when I went to culinary school, it like went off like an atom bomb. Like I said, I was kind of a, I would say a drifter, but like all my life, I kind of, I was good enough in school. But I didn't care about school. Like, yeah, I had good SATs. I got good grades if I felt like it, but like, I just didn't fucking feel like it. Even at UNF, I partied instead of going to classes because there's like I was technically a finance major. I didn't give a shit about finance remotely. I think I took that class to sleep with a girl. Like I'm pretty sure a cute girl was in that class, so I took that class. Mm-hmm. Um, then when I, I was never competitive, I was never really focused or driven. And as soon as I started culinary school, it was like complete game changer. And all I wanted to do was win. I wanted to look around the room and be better than everyone I saw. Like. I wasn't like cutthroat. Like there's a lot of kitchens where people are sabotaging each other. Happy to help anyone else. Very calm, collected guy. But when it comes down to my product versus everyone else in that room, I wanted nothing else but to be the best. Like I've never, I've never felt that before in my mm-hmm. life. So like competition hit me like a lightning bolt. Like I, I still like don't know how quite how to describe it. But the yeah. day I started culinary school, it was just I was almost a different person. 
what do you think it was kind of the passion and purpose of seeing something that you really liked or what do you think that thing that hit you might have been like a buy-in to cooking yeah i just think i i feel like i've always had a lot of potential but i never knew what it was and then finally the potential lining up with the ability to expand on that potential and like the key was in the lock and the engine or the key was in the ignition mm-hmm. and the engine was on like I'm finally mm-hmm. ready to race like see it just, the road yeah. one road to race down exactly place. exactly oh that's um, really interesting yeah I, just, I, I, I saw the path ahead I knew it was what I wanted I knew I had the tools to get there and then it was just finally on me to, to do it mm-hmm. so I think that's why everything just clicked and it was it was all I wanted to do it's, it's all yeah. I still want to do it mm-hmm. it's, you know that's still all. on the road still on the path mm-hmm. but I love it Absolutely, man. And I think one of the things that we talked a lot about was kind of learning through experience and learning through books, right? So reading a book, but it sounds like culinary school kind of gave you both outlets, right? Yeah. So you, similar to how you said, a lot of people end up in sh- what's chefhood or, you know, people end up as chefs, yeah. even just working their way up. So that's yeah. only knowledge through experience. Do you think having this knowledge from books prepared you in a different way or did it work well for you kind of having that dual approach experience and knowledge yeah it worked very well for me um i think it suited kind of the way i learn and the way i develop very well mm-hmm. but it's not for everybody uh, my school i think when i graduated culinary school i think we were at approximately like a 25 percent retention rate so mm-hmm. clearly it's not for everybody mm-hmm. uh when only a quarter of the people graduate I think that was kind of due in part to like the big chef boom at the time. Mm-hmm. I started in 2011 at culinary school okay. and that's when like the whole celebrity chef face was really starting to heat up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people didn't know what they were doing with life. They saw Emerald, they saw the chef shows, they saw mm-hmm. Top Chef and they thought that looks like so much fun. And mm-hmm. then when they realized what it takes, they realized like that is not for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that happened to a lot of people. That's a great segue. So you talked about a lot of these people who thought they wanted to be a chef because of the glamour yeah. that they presented from all these uh, mainstream medias, the shows, uh, whatever they saw, right? And because a lot of people, 75% in your case, didn't graduate because they were overtaken by the competitiveness or whatever other factors are. And I know you talked about that you, this this inner ignition that ignited your engine, right? You yeah. almost had like a... Turn, turn on moments yeah. that, that enabled you to streamline all your effort towards this passion which is cooking and I, I know you talked about you became uh, you went from you don't really care about your surroundings or competition to hyper competitive yeah. could you talk more and elaborate about how some of the aspects of the culinary school could have been very hyper competitive and how some are could be zero sum and some are very uh, collaborative and cordial yeah um, competition is great it's kind of what gets us going in the morning. You want to be better. But, like, when I was coming up through the ranks, like I said, I wanted to look to the left, look to the right, be better than both those people. And that's great, and that gets you kind of... gets you It, it pushes yourself. But now, now that... And especially since I'm an executive chef, I don't want to be better than everyone around me. I want to be better than I was when I woke up. Like, I want to be better than I started that day. I just want to be better so then I can help everyone else be better. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of competition, but there's a lot of kind of inward focus that helps you develop outwardly too. You can only help other people be better if you want to better yourself. 
Mm-hmm. You know, what did uh, Biggie say? We can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Amen. That's a good one. Yeah. Let's go cope. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the competition is great, but it also drives people fucking nuts. Like, there are restaurants out there, but these guys are literally, like... The foot, like the goal is to run a great restaurant, yet these guys are like stealing each other's products just to fuck with other people, just to drive their their teammates, their fellow line mm-hmm. cooks nuts, and like just to get a promotion. Like what that that is ludicrous to me. Like you're hurting your team as a goal to try and make yourself better, and then everyone's constantly fighting. And like you hear stuff of this at some of the best restaurants in the world, and I don't know how it works. Like I don't know how those guys have these amazing legendary restaurants where the team is constantly sabotaging and fighting each other like they, they must be talented out the ass because I just don't get how how get how that functions man because you almost need to have a cohesive unit within the kitchen to make sure everything's running correctly right yeah and passions get hot like we get real hot in the kitchen and like every kitchen I've ever seen when the show's on and when service is on things get fucking hot but at the end of the night you get some drinks with your team and your family again you know that you only were hot and heavy and screaming at each other because of how important the end goal is to everybody. Mm-hmm. You're yelling at someone because the plate's not right. You're not yelling at them because you, you hate them. Mm-hmm. You don't hate them because they undercooked the duck. You hate them because the restaurant has produced undercooked duck. Mm-hmm. It, it's all of us. It's the team. It's like, it's, it's how invested into the goal of being a great restaurant and a great team everyone is, is what causes the Gordon Ramsay attitude. Mm-hmm. He's not yelling at people because he likes making them feel bad. He's yelling at them because what they did needed, needed to be better. Not should have been better. He didn't want it to better. They're running a perfect restaurant that needed to be perfect. I need to yell at you to let you know that that's not acceptable. And it's almost removing the personality or removing the self out of it. There's no personalities involved necessarily. It's more just communicating about the goal rather than, you know, yeah. the personality and of it. That's a great way to put it because that that's what makes it so hard because it is. It's a very emotional outburst coming from a very non-emotional place. Mm-hmm. It's a yell, a scream, a curse. It's very emotional, but it's not coming from anger. It's coming from perfection it's coming from the strive of something very literal mm-hmm. what do you think are your biggest or what have you found helpful when dealing with you know the big emotional events when service like if you're kind of the executive chef team leader how do you stay calm and collected in times of I, I heat like that i don't stay calm and collected okay. um when shit's not going right i fucking hate it i go nuts mm-hmm. i you don't belittle everyone but like you gotta be stern, you gotta be focused, you gotta, it's, mm-hmm. it just has to be right. Mm-hmm. So like when things are not right, it's like, why the fuck, you, I know mm-hmm. you know what to do, why didn't you do what you were supposed to do? It's, mm-hmm. it's just like, I know we're friends, I know we spent all day laughing, but mm-hmm. you know that thing had to go in the oven 15 minutes ago, I need to know why the fuck it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And like, I, that, that sounds belittling and it sounds demeaning, but it's just like, there are diners who need that right now. Why wasn't that ready right now? I need to know what happened. Mm-hmm. And like it kind of sounds like you're trying to grind someone down, but really we're just trying to make the machine work. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. And then, you know, after service, you need to sit down with your team and explain why you said what you said. Say like, hey, I wasn't yelling at you because I enjoy it. I need to know why that wasn't done. So and that happens like every day. Every day I go with my team. 
maybe I got a little hot, maybe I said some shit at a tone that was a little offensive or a little annoying, but like at the end of the day we realized like it's not about our egos, it's not about a personality, it's about running the ship, keeping mm-hmm. it afloat. It's about doing what we woke up in the morning and came here to do. Mm-hmm. Making sure all the gears are running together. Exactly. Putting on a good performance. Exactly. Just like an engine. If one of the gears fucks up, the other gears can't <laughs> grow bigger. Like, we, mm-hmm. we need everything to, to to function. So, on our way here, we cre- came up with this metaphor about how you are the comp- a composer yeah. for the symphony. And, of course, throughout your career to become this currently this uh, caliber position of executive chef... Right now, your responsibility is more like macro versus micro being a line cook, being in charge of your little cubicle, not even cubicle, little two-by-two station, right? And during our last interview with our last guest, we talked about this this profound, powerful concept of I am the source of every outcome in my life, good and bad. And you, of course, when a line cook fucks up, he or she only has to deal with the consequences of being yelled at and being being shit on by the executive chef yourself, right? But conversely, you are now the composer. Now you're the captain of this whole shit, of this composition of all the gears, and you have to ensure that every gear does its proper job to create the seamless, this polished final dish. So how do you internalize that and how do you deal with the mistakes of your subordinates, the mistakes of your team, or even sometimes uh, your mistakes? I, I like that quote that you said just now, the I am the source of all my outcomes, and that's something I kind of miss about being a line cook. Because when you're a line cook, that's true. You have your station and that's your world. It's small, but it's yours. And you control everything in it and everything that comes out of that, you've controlled. So like when it's great, you're great. And when it's shitty, you're shitty, but at least you know how to get better. And it's you. Like you are the complete source of everything coming from your station. And that's like so beautiful and so perfect to me it's like nice neat it's coming from me i can control everything and as a narcissist it's great because it's just like everything is me 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 my station my prep my dishes hit the line i get to see it go out well and it makes me very happy now that i am the composer of the kitchen i find i'm not the source of everything i can like everything i control everything that i produce doesn't come from me it comes from everyone around me i'm just kind of the conduit for it they're producing the electricity. I'm just the lightning rod that focuses out externally. That's what drives me nuts. And I have a great team. They are all phenomenal. But the fact that my name has to go out on stuff that other people had control over makes me absolutely crazy. It's something that's been as transitioning from a line cook and a sous chef to an executive. That's something that gives me unimaginable, unimaginable anxiety. Um, the fact that I'm exec, my name is on the product. When I put out product, people know who was responsible for it. It doesn't matter that someone else fucked it up because that was the dish I put out. Even, like it's, It all comes through me. So learning how to kind of let go of that anxiety and control freak issue has been very difficult as an executive chef. And that's another reason to what I was saying before. That's why we get so hot because it's just like, you fucked up, but no one knows who the, who you are. They know I who I am. So your fuck ups that you caused, I'm gonna be the, the one who people think about when they think about how bad that was. And that's why we get so hot. And that's why it's like you don't understand that when I sell your shit, it's my shit, and I have to put it out. But I'm not the one that messed up. So that's mm-hmm. very very difficult for me to kind of be happy with. 
Um, I don't know who said this quote. It might have actually been Anthony Bourdain. He said, the key to surviving the restaurant industry is learning how to be happy and discontent at the same time. Could you say that one more time? To learn how to... the, The key to surviving the restaurant industry is learning how to be happy and discontent at the same time. And I get what he means because you have to have a certain amount of discontention to keep pushing yourself. It's got to be the, the, the knowing that there's always more better things to do has to be your driving force. You need a certain amount of discontention, but you can't take that home with you. You need to balance that out with some form of happiness because it's, it's the strive for perfection, the discontent in everything you do that'll make you better. I remember once I told all my friends in culinary school, I was like, I never take pictures of my work because I hate it. And she was like, yeah, that's because you're a good chef. You're a good, you hate everything you do. That's one of the reasons you are a good chef. You need this constant discontent on your shoulder telling you, no, make it better. No, make it quicker. No, make it thicker, fatter, crispier, juicier, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the guys that let that emotion rule their lives, they're the ones that don't last. You need to have happiness. You need to balance happiness and discontentment. And I think those are kind of the two things that it's a tough balance. That's, you know, everyone knows about all the, the tragedy that happens in the culinary industry. And I think that, that when people can't find or manage that balance, I think that's when people kind of uh, become unraveled. So speaking of balance, so Aiden and I, we, we, we love posing this question to our guest is we love talking about the power of habits. Right, because I really think it's your micro habits that shape the reality of what you do on a macro level. Sure. Uh, so micro leads to macro. And you talked about a lot of, we lost a lot of culinary minds and a lot of just green minds uh, in recently with the mental health epidemics and stuff. Yeah. So before you touch that in depth later on, I just want to ask you personally, what is what are the small habits or what are the habits that enable you to show up to your day-to-day work, enable you to compartmentalize and manage these anxiety struggle that you're going through for Alec Lipschitz as, as executive chef? I think no matter what, at the end of it, it's about the, the, the joy I get to bring. Like, I think at the end of the day, I'm making people happy. I'm making myself happy because I love cooking. Hopefully I can make my staff enjoy the time that they have. Because I know in your first episode, you talk about the vast percentage of people have to spend at work. Most of their lives are spent at work. So it's important to me that I'm not forcing anyone to spend 75% of their life in an awful environment. I think that's a huge responsibility of mine. It's something that I have to take, take super seriously. Otherwise, I'm contributing to the mental health problem. If I'm ruling my kitchen like a tyrant and I'm making people dread coming in and count the seconds until they can leave my presence, I'm feeding the fire that is the, the mental health problem, especially in the culinary industry. So. As far as the habits and balance, it's, I, I just try to spread happiness. I think that's the one keystone that allows the balance of my life. I, I know I don't really have like macro habits, like specific little things. Like I don't get up and work out every morning. I don't have a very rigid schedule. But when it comes to like little micro things in my life, I just try to focus my energy on doing a couple good things every day, you know, making a couple people's day better. That's kind of what I grab on to when, to balance out the shit of my life, to balance out the 70 hour work weeks, the crazy hours, the, there are people who hate my food and yet I still have to serve them. Like 
all the shit in my life, even though the shit most of the time outweighs the good, that good is kind of what you focus on. At the end of the day, you can you can look at something that annoyed you, or you can look at something that made happy, made you happy. So I think it's very important to kind of realize that there's a choice and to choose the right thing. You can always choose optimism, right? Exactly. And listen, I saying choose optimism over pessimism is easy to say to an optimistic mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. but that's just like going to someone with depression and be like, "Have you tried being happy?" Like, it's, it's easy to say choose optimism, but it's something that I think you really have to accept into your heart. Mm-hmm. What about in the kitchen? Do, how do you kind of, you know, spread optimism or, you know, stay organized when all of this shit hits the fan? Like, you said you don't have external macro habits, but what about inside the kitchen? I'm sure to have rose this, you know, rose this far, you must have had habits or things that you do within the kitchen that you kind of live and die by. I, I think it's... From a team management perspective, it's really, really important to me to find out what people's goals are. I think that if you find out what their goals are, what someone wants, that's the kind of vessel you have to make them happy. You can't work. To, I, the people that drive me nuts to work with or to work under me are the people that you or even they don't know what they want. It's like, I always call them jokers. Not because they're comical, it's because the joker from Batman, the Dark Knight. The people that just want to see the world burn, the people that don't have a goal, the people that don't know what they want. How can I control someone or work with someone or manipulate someone's habits if I don't know what they want? If I don't know what you want, where are you and I going to go together? Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have an end game, I can't take you there. Like, it's like, if I don't know what you want to do with yourself, mostly because they don't know what they want to do with themselves, I can only give you tasks. I can't give you goals. I can't give you... Development. You can't develop someone if you don't know what they want. So to me, kind of learning how to work with people and developing people and making it a great place to work is all about learning people's goals, learning what they want. Some people have culinary goals. They want to open up their own restaurant. Some people want to be a corporate exec. Some people just want to make enough money to provide for their family. And that's fine because then you, you know what they want. You know what everyone wants and you can kind of build yours and their lives around that. It's the, the people who are the joker that just are pure chaos incarnate. Those are the people that I find very, very difficult to keep on a team. Mm-hmm. So I think you as a chef and I think kitchen as a workplace is pretty unique. Yeah. So when you look at like Big Four Consulting or Big Four Accounting Firms, and a lot of these similar workplaces, of course, they accept people from all walks of life. Right? You have your peers who came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who grew up in mainline. Yeah. Philadelphia, who came from Philadelphia, international. However, there is this common perceived baseline that we all share as because we all made it this place. That means we all went to a very good school. We have very good resume, very good work experiences, yada, yada. There's a lot of commonalities between us in our workspace. In the contrary, for you and a chef, you quoted this to us earlier, which we would love for you to elaborate, is kitchen is the island of misfits and misfit toys. Yeah. Right? And it sounds like in the kitchen kitchen as a workplace whether it's in your kitchen or other kitchens out there you guys collect such a array of people from literally all walks of life people who were troubled youth or troubled backgrounds or people who didn't know what they wanted to do yourself included before you came across this passion which is cooking yeah. right uh, could you talk more about that experience that that exceptional diversity that kitchens have and also maybe touch on about your background how you eventually led to this 
Kitchen, the island of misfits and mischiefs? Sure. Um, I think one of the things about kitchen life that is so accepting of everyone is the only thing that matters is cooking. You, I don't care if you went to culinary school. I don't care if you're a felon. I've worked with multiple ex-cons throughout my career. I don't care if you grew up rich. I don't care if you grew up in a desert raised by wolves. If you come to my kitchen and you're willing to work your ass off and you want to make great food, that's all that matters to us. You know, before I went to culinary school, I was a bit of a piece of shit. Like, I kind of had a sketchy background, you know. But now, I cook. I make great food. And, like, when someone comes into me, yeah, a resume is great. I don't, I don't need to know. I need to know how well you can cook. I need to know how well you work with the team. That's all that matters. Um, I know I feel like I keep quoting Bourdain, but he says, like, it doesn't matter who you are. You can either cook at mid-rare or you can't. You can either make 100 omelets in an hour or you can't. That's all I care about. I don't care if you just got released from prison yesterday for murder. Is the steak mid-rare when I said mid-rare? Then you're my best friend right now. It doesn't yeah. matter. I, you know, I just, don't kill me. Cook the steak right. Mm. We'll be best friends. And yeah, like every kitchen I've ever worked at, has you, you meet more of a diverse array of people in a kitchen than almost any other career. And that's another thing that makes it beautiful is that you know, we, we didn't all go to great schools, so we don't all have that kind of certain archetype background. You find some guy who moved here three years ago from God knows where, but in a couple months he makes a dish from God knows where, and then all of a sudden you realize it's beautiful and amazing, and then you incorporate that into the kitchen. So I think that the eclectic and insane background that can make anyone a chef is what makes chefs make each other better. I think it's one of the things that is so beautiful about our industry is that yeah, there's, there's no path to being a cook. We are the island of misfit toys. We could have been a bus driver yesterday, got a DUI, lost our license, so we were forced to cook. Or like, obviously, a lot of kitchens have loose regulations on documentation. It doesn't matter if you're an immigrant. It doesn't matter who walked in that door. You're in the door now, so if you can cook, you're in. We take, we take anyone who can get the job done, you know? That's fascinating because it's almost so unlike any other industry in some ways, which I think makes it such a beautiful thing because it brings in so many different walks of life and different perspectives that almost can make the other side. Like there's so many different inputs that it makes the output that much more special Yeah, because um, there's so many different things going into it. Yeah. And, I, and it's great too because obviously every restaurant is so different. So a lot of guys, you know, some guys are like lifers, like they, they've been working in one restaurant for 20 years and they're just perfect at what they do. But most chefs, you know, they'll be at a place for a couple of years, they'll find something they want to do better. And that's another thing because like people who worked at other fabulous restaurants are always switching roles with each other. So it's like I might lose a line cook, but I get a new line cook who spent three years at a sushi restaurant and now he gets to teach me how to make sushi. There's a lot of cuisine, I don't know anything about like Filipino cuisine. So I'd love one day, like a guy comes on my staff who's a great Filipino chef and now he can teach us how to cook Filipino. Mm -hmm. So that's a great thing, like when you're constantly evolving your staff, you're constantly evolving yourself and your identity. Um, it's, it's great when, I, when you hire someone and then they get to teach you. It's like, it's fucking mm -hmm. beautiful. Uh, Aiden and I, we talked about in our previous few episodes ago about the concept of learning without borders is when a lifelong learner like yourself and a lot of professions who are willing to 
uh, deal what it takes, the full emergence process, which is one of the guests he alluded to. And for him, learning without borders was huge. That's what enabled him to retire at his uh, age, yeah. to learn without borders, to learn and to emerge in whatever process he could. And that sounds like the kitchen is a, this natural environment that enables all the chefs out there to learn without borders. Because like you said, in a way, kitchen as an industry, is, it's unique, like what Aiden talked about, from any other industries. Because you guys are literally merit-based. All the only thing that matters is food. Yeah. Whether you can cook or you can't. Like there's food. There's no drama. There's no all these external compositions of factors. Just is food. And there's which, no the check is in the mail. It's even, yep. you know it's it's complete result based. Yeah. And which enables all you to learn from borders. So in a lot of workspace and a lot of situations, learning without borders is simply an analogy. It's an elegant analogy to say that as long as you're willing to learn. There's going to be a place for it to belong and for you to grow and evolve and elevate. But for you, I think for your situation and the kitchen that you manage, without borders is quite literally because I'm sure there's a lot of people in the kitchen, like you mentioned about immigration is very, very sensitive topic. And of course, you talked about culinary, such a purist, such a pure world that as long as you bring the volume of food, you're accepted into it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But maybe you could talk talk about how learning without without borders that could be interpreted as very, quite literally in terms of immigration wise in the kitchen how that's like and just unveil some of the curtain for us. Yeah, I mean, immigrants to America, whether documented or undocumented, are the heart and soul, the backbone of the kitchen workforce. They make kitchens run. We all make kitchens run, but the, without the the amount of immigrants in the culinary industry there'd be no culinary industry it's the beautiful melting pot but it's weird to say to refer to them as their own entity because we're all just one crew if you get rid of the immigrants that's you can't you can't run restaurants without you can't run a restaurant period when you limit the people who can work at them we like i said we're incredibly accepting they're the heart and soul and they come from other places and they bring with them their own versions of passion and their own version of cuisine and their own version of work ethic and it's it's what makes the machine run like it's the diversity and the love and the passion that everyone from their different avenues brings together it's it's how we do it it's how all this happens it can't happen without it and to limit people who can work in kitchens or to say that people can't work in kitchens because they come from any sort of background will kill the culinary industry. Um, I've worked, not for the company I'm with now, but in restaurants with zillions of undocumented workers and they're some of the best, most passionate, most creative people in the business. It's a, a completely ludicrous idea to even consider the fact that they should not be part of America, the work program, the workforce, or the culinary industry. It, it's just absolutely insane to even consider that idea. Would you say that, that applies to both corporate cooking culture or private cooking culture or just like res, uh, the regular restaurants? Corporate cooking culture, it's, you're pretty much pigeonholed into documentation. Um, we have background checks. We have to. It's something that we can't get around. There's no looking the other way with us. So we are kind of as a corporation forced into that um, within a restaurant, all we care about is the best possible product. That's all we want. So 
it, this is kind of a tricky topic to talk about. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I don't want to make any generalizations saying that people either blindly adhere to laws or blatantly break laws. But just to the point of, personally, I think it's an insane idea to limit anyone for any reason to exclude them from restaurant work at all. So clearly there are some cultural differences between the corporate chefs and just private chefs. And I know you have experiences in both and you treaded both waters before. Could you tell us about what are the common misconceptions or what are the actual realities are like between the corporate chef culture and everything else? We're not as cool. Uh, being a corporate chef, it's just not as cool, man. Like, I miss mm-hmm. fine dining. Like, I, I would love to own my own restaurant, like, and pass you out and see my name and boos all the time and see pictures of my amazing food. I wish I could, like, walk into industry bars and have people respect me because they know my restaurant. I really, really wish I had that, but I made a choice to go corporate. I can support myself. I can eventually have a family. I, I'm Monday to Friday. I don't, you know, at the latest, I might leave my kitchen at nine, eight, nine, ten o'clock. But I chose that life. One day I want to settle down. One day I want to kind of provide for a family. I also love seeing my friends. And on a selfish note, I love eating out. I love the fact that. Some, most nights I'm home by six or seven, I can go out and enjoy the other great chefs in the city. I get to kind of be like the, the vampire that can walks in the day, you know, I'm like the day walker. I get, to me, it's the best of both worlds. I know a lot of industry chefs would, would metaphorically kill themselves if they had to work my job. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do the guidelines. They couldn't do the paperwork. That's not what they do. They do the food. All they want is excellent food and all they want is passion. And I, I dislike the office end of things, but I know it's, a, it's something necessary that I have to do to make the life I want. I love being able to see my friends almost any time I want to. I love being able to spend a decent amount of quality time with my girlfriend and with my dog and with my family. It, that is very, very important to me. But on the flip side of that, the people that make their, their kitchen and their restaurant their life, that's their family. Sure, they get to see their significant others, especially if that significant other is in the industry and they go out late together. But, like, I have friends who, one, you know, they work in the industry hardcore and their significant others are nine to five, and they, like, don't get to see each other. And some of them, it's like, well, if I don't go to the bar at 2 a.m., I won't see them for a week because of the hours and stuff. So that's a huge struggle that comes into the restaurant industry life. I chose not to to do that, but it's it's a necessary thing for life, and I think that's kind of what it, it's a double edged sword because it's beautiful because you get a new family, you get your brothers and sisters in the kitchen, and you kind of live and die together. Then you all go out and party, and then you wake up the next morning, you shake it off, and you go in and do it again, and that's like such a bond. Like some of my friends who work in restaurants. When they're partying and they're out together, they're all out. Even if they're just doing something yet more wholesome than going to a bar, it's such a family vibe. I don't get that, but at least I kind of I get my own family. I get my own friends. So it's it's really difficult. A lot of times I wish I was fine dining, but um, a lot of times those fine dining guys, even at the very very tip top of their career, they pop. They have brain aneurysms, they have heart attacks, they drink themselves to death, they have drug problems, and they kill themselves. So that, I, I say selfishly I like my corporate job because I get to see my friends and family. 
I'm also, for lack of a better word, scared of restaurant life. You see the horror stories, you see these guys that give their entire lives to the game, and the game doesn't always give it back. The game, you, you put everything into loving the restaurant life, and it does not always love you back. And it's every time you see a Bourdain, you see a Hamaru Kantu, you see um, Chef Voltaire, the Swiss, the Swiss chef, earned three Michelin stars, was voted like the number one chef in his country, and kills himself. And when I see stuff like that, it terrifies me because, like, I, I also don't know if I could handle giving that much of my life to something that doesn't make you happy. So, like, everyone knows the mental health issue is crazy in the culinary industry. Yeah, man, it's scary. It's scary shit. When you hear about Bourdain, a lot of people get sad. I get scared. What do you think is a big driver of that? Because I think it's kind of interesting seeing to what you just said, both sides of it, the sense of community as well as the mental health side. Because I think a lot of mental health comes from isolation. I know personally, you know, loneliness is one of the biggest driving factors for my own mental health. So having a sense of community with, you know, the family that you're almost reborn into, but also coupled with the fact of mental health, how do you think that relationship plays out or kind of what drives each of them? I can tell you my thoughts about it. I can't begin to assume what, what these people were thinking when they did what they did or why they did or how their lives got them to, you know, mental mental health issues. But to me, it's, it's the fear of success. It's that you're not happy, so you pick something you think is going to make you happy. You say, I'm willing to be unhappy because I know it's what it takes to get me three Michelin stars. So unhappiness is okay because it's the sacrifice that I'm choosing to make. So you allow yourself to work this insane lifestyle to make all these sacrifices because you know that the unhappiness you feel now is going to pay off when you get your goal. And then one quote I always tell myself is, what's the only thing worse than not getting everything you want? Getting everything you want. So it's you, you sacrifice so much telling yourself that when you get the goal, it's all going to be worthwhile. And then you get the goal and you realize that's not why you were unhappy. And then you're still unhappy. And I think when people reach the goal that they gave so much up for and it doesn't make them as happy as they thought, I think that's when the, the, the downward spiral starts to begin. And I really want to acknowledge the fact that both uh, Aiden and you are talking about this because of course in celebration of the world's mental health day recently I think it is very important to acknowledge and talk about because this isn't now epidemic mental yeah. health is an epidemic yeah. and of course not aside just from the culinary world just generally speaking we're losing we lost Kate Spade recently yeah. Robin Williams the list goes on and on and on and of course I think you're you, you offer this unique insight into the culinary world and the degree in minds that we lost, Bourdain, uh, you name them, because you live through their similar lifestyle, you know what it takes, right? And do you think the culinary world is doing enough to help prevent or help de-escalate the force that's going on? Or do you think it's more like turning a blind eye on because they don't really know what to do at this point? That's hard to say. Um, mental health is just such an unpredictable thing. There's no cure for mental health. Like we talked about earlier, you can't just tell someone, oh, you're unhappy? Have you tried being happy? Like, it's, it's not a choice that you can just openly choose. 
I wish more was being done to help rectify mental health, but I have no idea what can be done. You know, you someone's mentally corrupt. What do you do? Bring them flowers and say, "I hope these flowers cure your mental health." Like I, yeah, I wish more was being done, but it's almost like what can be done. Personally, I I'm not a fan of therapy, so I, I don't think that therapy. I'm sure it helps a great many people. I, I don't necessarily, to me, think that's anything that's going to help someone. I think it's all about looking inward, finding something that can make you happy. But like like I just said, you got to pick the right thing because if you put all your eggs in the basket of one thing that's going to make you happy and that wasn't it, that's a really, really dangerous and deadly game to play. So I think it's all about finding something to get up for in the morning. Otherwise, if you just keep driving and driving into nowhere, nowhere is exactly where you'll be. It's all about just kind of looking into yourself. You got to find something to keep going. And I think you kind of nailed it on the head with that because it is a macro problem, but you can't solve it in the macro because it's such a micro, like it's individual. Everyone has their specific circumstance, their specific problems that they're dealing for. So it's almost impossible to put out like a macro initiative that would fix mental health because it's so personalized you know you found what works for you we're all trying to find what works for us respectively but that's a like you said personal inward journey it's not like the government can come out and put out a macro initiative to solve yeah everyone has to take an hour lunch break that should do it like that that seems like everyone (laughs) has longer lunches that would be pretty great though yeah (laughs) yeah just like you know Flowers at the end of the day for everyone. That should make them happy, right? Good. Have Good. you Go. making lunch for us? That yeah, exactly. you know, Eating some tasty grub. Yeah, but it's insanely difficult. But I think that, at least to me, mental health is something that's very personal to everyone. It's Some people can't overcome it. You, you want to talk about Bourdain? In my eyes, that guy had everything in the world. That guy had such an unbelievable life. He got to do what I think would make me insanely happy. Clearly, it didn't make him happy clearly he had there, there was something that he couldn't get past um and that's another reason it's so scary man you look at people that empirically on paper have it all and then they kill themselves and that's just like shit man what like and that's i think another reason that innately i chose the corporate world is that i'm kind of settling a lower bar on my emotions. I'm I'm not saying that anything I do is a low bar at work, but it's something I don't have to give my whole heart and soul to. So I think that's, for me, is kind of a little bit of a mental buffer that I can leave work Mm -hmm. at the end of the day and go home. It's not like the restaurant's always running. It's not like the engine's always running. It's, It's something I can leave at the end of the day. When you own your own restaurant, that's everything. That's your whole life. So it better fucking make you happy because if it doesn't, you really have nothing. And there's always something more to improve on, something that could be done, something that could be being done. Like you almost can never yeah. take an off hour. Well, that's the, the balance of discontentment and happiness, you know. Mm-hmm. The discontent makes you better, but the happiness makes you whole, keeps you alive. I like that. So with that discontentment versus happiness, that, that healthy balance, the dosage balance that you have... I want to talk back about because you, you talked about how what's worse than not having everything is having, having everything, everything that you want. Yeah. So how and what were the expectations of being an executive chef? Because it's obviously a pinnacle point of your current career as a corporate chef. And what was that like versus what you expected? And once you become one, what were the differences or the discontentment and what were the happiness that contributed to it? 
It's a great question. When I took the executive role, it was incredibly difficult for me. It was really hard to transition from just focusing on the food to focusing on everything. And it's something I still am not even close to good at. Like learning how to deal with people, learning how to keep the flow of everything running, it's it's way more than just cooking the food. And like even I know my boss I know he thinks I make the best food in the world, but he really wants me to cook less. As good as my product is and as much as the clients might like my product, I know from a leadership and a management standpoint, he wants me to cook less if none. He wants me to focus less on the plates coming out and more on the big picture of everything. And he's 100% right. I, I, I need to be more executive, less chef. Oh, I like that. I need to pry myself off of the station more. I, and like, I need the kitchen to run better when I'm gone than when I'm there. I need to focus more on making other people be just as good as what I can do so that I can be free to better everyone. Put your efforts into the people around you so you can enjoy the autonomy of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're not as crucially a part of the ship, but more, I guess, the captain. Yeah. Kind of leading yeah. from afar. Exactly. Kind of be the captain of the ship, be the ship itself, kind of be the vessel mm. for everyone else's creativity and for everyone else's goodness. I gotta, one of my biggest weaknesses is like control. I gotta loosen up the reins. Like I gotta let my cooks handle parties. I gotta let people do the VIP stuff. It's just really, really hard to watch other people put out stuff that the consumer knows comes from me. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to let me let someone else do something with my name on it. And that's just because I do give myself to it. I, I, need, I need to be liked. I need people to think I'm good. Like that's why I'm a chef because I like I have this desire to be told I'm good and that's why I love putting out food because I do it and they tell me I'm good it's amazing it's instant gratification so letting go of the reins of that has been very very difficult for me yeah it's definitely a challenging disparity right responsibility of critiques like you're taking responsibility for any word that can come back but in some cases you're probably taking no responsibility for what's actually being done like you don't play a role 100 you know so it's that like dichotomy of responsibility of what's being said and what's being done and you're in almost both corners on it right yeah yeah it's hard to play all the angles of that because i need to delegate and I need to give people the freedom to do what they do when I delegate, but I also need to know everything they do and know why they did it because if something goes wrong and the shit hits the fan, I'm the one who has to answer. So when something got really messed up and the client comes to me and says, what happened? I can't say, oh, I told him to do it. I need, mm -hmm. and like, if I told him to do it, I need to know what happened. So when mm -hmm. someone comes to me, I can say, well, this didn't happen, I apologize, this is why, this is the cause, and this is the fix. Mm -hmm. I like It's just tough to give someone complete freedom while also knowing everything they do, because they feel like I'm telling them they're getting freedom, but they're being micromanaged the entire time. But it's just because, like, as the manager and as the executive chef, if I did wasn't the cause, I at least need to know the answers. Like, I at least have to be able to explain to someone what happened, why, and how I'm going to fix. But it's difficult. It's, it's, it's a really tough mental and executional balance. So for a fine dining chef, how is it different from yours? So of course, your boss wants to be more exact, less chef. Yeah. Of course, you are still finding that happy dose of balance, right? Yeah. Because you still a progress for you and a process for you. But for a fine dining chef, whether he or she's the owner or the exact chef of fine dining restaurants, 
how often do they actually cook? Do they face a similar dilemma that you face on a daily basis or do they have more autonomy? I think that that's, um, it varies from restaurant to restaurant. I know a lot of executive chefs at restaurants spend most of their time in the office. I know a lot of chef owners that are executive chefs and they own the place and they're running the line five, six, seven nights a week. They're always there. Um, it's all about balance. I think that it's it's difficult for the people that are there all the time, but it's because, like I said, you're, you're just really too close to everything all the time. You need space. You need separation. You need to be able to turn it off. Otherwise, it'll you're, you're just grinding your gears until the engine pops. But you can't just never be there. You need your fingers on the pulse. You need to know everything that's going on. Otherwise, the kitchen is going to run itself without you, and then you're almost not even a member of your own kitchen. So it's about finding the balance. You, you need separation, but you also need to be, not, not necessarily oversight, but you need to be part of it. You need to be part of the flow, part of the, of the solar system of it all. Like, not to say that everyone should be revolving around you, but you need to be the sun in the galaxy. You need to be in the middle of it, watching everything work around you. Not, not revolving like it should be focused on you, but revolving in that you can see all the planets circulate around you. You kind of, you're kind of in it from, like, I don't like to rule from above. I like to rule from within, mm -hmm. you know? Or lead from the center. Like, yeah, kind of being exactly. able to look around lead, and lead be from the center, involved yeah. in all aspects rather than, like, segmented in specific corners. You can kind of see everything and almost exactly. holistically lead. Yeah. Because like, you're in charge of the food, the presentation, the people themselves. Like yeah. It's kind of a widespread management lens, more so than like a specific department, which I think is pretty unique, right? Because we kind of come from the corporate environment where it's like, you're the manager of the finance team, right? Yeah. You're the manager yeah. of everything that goes on in the restaurant in some yeah. sense, right? And I think, you know, every career has one person who's in charge of everything that goes on, but... It's difficult. It's been very, very hard for me to kind of find the exact place to be and the exact way to be a manager in the kitchen. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that that transition, I mean, you've talked a lot about balance and kind of leading from the middle, kind of keeping everyone together and cohesive as a unit, but are there any lessons that you've taken away from this first, you know, year or so at this new job that kind of come external to the kitchen, maybe that you've learned there and then brought into your everyday life? Yeah. Um, kind of an interesting question. I, I don't 100% know how to answer that, but it's just like trying to not let everything bother you because I used to be just kind of results oriented, but now everything that goes wrong is my problem. So when someone comes up to me and pokes me and says like, hey, this is broken, I can't take it as an annoyance because mm -hmm. otherwise no one's going to come up to you when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. If you act frustrated, like, I'm not, I'm not frustrated that you told me that the oven's broken, I'm fucking frustrated that i got to fix this oven now. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like I've had to change my attitude a lot. I've had to like keep it inside. I, I can't seem frustrated when something goes wrong, otherwise no one's going to come to me when things go wrong because they think that it's just going to piss me off or they're scared I'm going to yell or they're scared I'm going to like bring a negative attitude. So that's, I guess, one of the biggest lessons I've been trying to learn is to keep my emotions out of it when things go wrong and solve it from a more of an analytical business-based function to kind of not get furious and frustrated and just kind of calm myself down, compose, figure out how we're going to fix the problem and fix it. And I think mm -hmm. at life, 
that's been helping me too. When my mm. girlfriend pokes me and says, the kitchen's a fucking mess, <laughs> go clean it. She's not yeah. trying to piss me off. She's trying to make her house nice. So mm. like, sure, it's just, it's like, I'm annoyed I have to, I'm not annoyed with you. I'm annoyed that I have to spend the next two hours doing dishes. So it's mm. like, and keeping that inside and not being visually outwardly frustrated. I think, yeah, that's mm. something that my new post as an executive chef made me work better on that blends into me being a better person and a better boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of one of the things of learning that it's not, how do I say, just learning ways to be better without being negative about it. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I'm a very mm -hmm. easily flustered person. Yeah. Like when shit goes wrong, like when, when my cooks ask me, like, why are you so pissed right now? I'll say, this day keeps poking me. And they don't know what I mean, but it's like every 10 seconds, this day just keeps fucking poking me. And like what you just said to me was one of a thousand pokes. I'm not mad at you. I'm just like, I need you to know that my outburst just now, that, that was my problem, not yours, dude. Like, I, I hope you can forgive me for that. This whole day is my issue. I hope I'm not allowing my problems to make everyone else negative. And I guess that's something that I try to, the fix to that is something I try to bring home with me in life. The power of perspective, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what things do you think make a great chef, whether that's, you know, personality based or having specific values that might align with the kitchen culture as a whole? Like what things really distinguish a great chef from, you know, a normal chef? I think the number one thing is dedication. You have to want it more than pretty much anything. You have to be completely dedicated to your mission statement, to whatever it is you set out to do, I think the only way you'll ever achieve that is through almost complete dedication. And the work ethic is what backs up the dedication. You need to have the dedication, and then that's kind of the mental aspect, and physically you have to be willing and able to put in the work ethic to back that up. I think that's kind of the the frontline driver. That's like the, the, the pavement you're laying down on the road to get there. And then once you're on the path, it's how do I convince other people to buy in? How do I convince my staff to believe what I believe? To, to have my desire, to have my work ethic. The culinary industry doesn't pay well. You're never gonna have a monetary value. You're never gonna be able to convince people monetarily to do. I know big four, it's like, yeah, this job might suck, but I'm giving you a fucking boatload of money to do it, so you're gonna do it or shut up. Like, you want a Bentley? Do what I ask you, I'll give you a fucking Bentley. Like, I, I don't have that much of a carrot to dangle in front of people. It's as a leader, you gotta find a way to convince other people to work as hard as you do for what you want, even though that that wasn't their dream. Their dream wasn't the mission statement that you came up with for your restaurant. You got to get people to buy into it. And I think that's kind of what, what functionally makes it all work. How do you get people to buy in? Is that kind of like a lead by example kind of thing? Leading by example, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the, the best way to do it. No one's ever going to want to work harder for your goal than you do. Mm -hmm. I can't say, hey, guys, I want this kitchen to be spotless and then expect them to clean harder than I'm cleaning. Like, like if you set a goal, no one's going to work harder than you are for that goal. So you have to work super hard hoping that they follow. No one's going to keep a cleaner station than their chef. If they see a chef has a messy station, they're going to see it's acceptable to have a messy station. If they see a guy who doesn't, who's okay with mediocrity, they'll be okay with mediocrity. So yeah, leading by example is almost completely fundamentally necessary. It's 
no one will ever outperform you for what your goal is. They'll outperform you for what their goal is. They'll work harder than you because they want your job, Mm -hmm. but they won't work harder for you to produce the food that you want them to. So yeah, leading by example is paramount. It's completely mandatory. Mm-hmm. Just to do a hard pivot, so I have a quick question for you, and this is definitely way less serious than all the questions we <laughs> asked before. So, is it true that all Greek chefs are you know bigger frames? Because you obviously sitting in front of us, you're a pretty skinny chef, and of course, I've tasted your food before. I know your caliber of skills match with your position, but how is that like? Is that a stereotype? Is that a stigma? How uh, one last Anthony Bourdain quote, I promise I'm done. His response to never trust a skinny chef, he says, most of the best chefs in the world are skinny and not to be trusted. Um, chef, like I said before, man, chefs come from everywhere. Mm-hmm. We, we eat a lot. We also are on our feet for 16 hours a day, burning calories, hot kitchens. Some of us are fat. Some of us are skinny. Some of us are tall. Some of us are short. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't think there's any physical limitation to a chef. It's difficult for bigger people to move around smaller kitchens, but I've seen big chefs that fucking move, that move like crazy. Like, they move like Jerome Bettis move. Like, they're, they're big guys or girls, and they haul ass. Like, they, they get shit done like crazy. I don't think they're... It's a funny joke, never trust a skinny chef. Like, I, I get where it came from, but skinny fat, man. If you can cook, you can cook. So you said that you specialize or your favorite type of cooking is modern America. What's kind of the fundamentals or big parts of modern American cooking? I would say that modern American doesn't really have any fundamentals. It's, it's the fund America was based on cultures from all over the world. So the fundamentals of modern American come from everywhere. There's no base fundamentals. It's, it's taking something that was traditional from somewhere else and adding non-traditional components to it. I was telling you guys earlier, one of my favorite restaurants does very traditional Chinese-style Peking duck, but they do it on a Jewish on a Jewish bagel, everything spiced baolong. So it's like you get these traditional aspects and you mix them all together. You make it, you make that your own. You take cultures. I'm culturally Jewish, but food's my culture. Food's my identity. I. I take some of the things that my mom taught me how to make and I blend that with the the fundamental French style cuisine I learned in culinary school and then the, the modern American I've developed over my career and you mix that and that becomes the culture of food. So I gave up meat uh, two years ago because of the anti-factor farming stuff. Other than the prosciutto you ate the other night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Had a Flexitarian is my intensity. So, but I think even like domestically and internationally speaking, I think uh, Wagyu beef and Kobe beef are very popular. And those are definitely some fancy terms that people throw around without knowing what they are exactly. So do you think you as a chef could give us the proper definitions and help us distinguish what they are, what those mean, what those like titles actually suggest? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of terminology that looks really, really sexy and great on menus and sells food and you can add three more dollars to your menu price when you say something's Kobe. But, um... Specifically, if you want to talk about Kobe, I might be wrong on this, but I'm. There's no, the FDA doesn't tell you what what can and can't be Kobe. There's no regulatory body that will come to your restaurant, check the Kobe ness of your beef, and say that you've been lying to people. It's like you go to a a gastro pub and they say, oh yeah, we have Kobe hot dogs. 
how much Kobe in Japan is tiny. How much product do you think they're possibly putting out? Did when you get the the Wagyu? So the difference between Kobe and Wagyu is Wagyu is a type of Australian cattle. Kobe is the way that cattle is manufactured. You know, they they massage it, they feed it sake, it listens to Beethoven and Bach all day. It's that's kind of what they do to get the best product. And I believe that stuff is very very sternly regulated in Japan. But in America, there's there's nothing to say that I can't get an Angus burger, grind it up in house, say it's my Kobe beef patty, and no one's good. There's, there's no hotline to call where feds come in and check, ask for my Kobe certificate. Like, did you massage the beef? For you? Yeah, well, I was. How long was this beef massaged for? Let's see the sake it's been drinking. Um, you know, Wagyu is a great cattle. Miyazaki is a is kind of another term like Kobe. But I was showing Ben Lawson pictures earlier. When you see A6 graded, real deal, Wagyu, Kobe, Maizaki, whatever, anyone who knows anything about the steak, you can look at it and immediately tell. There's no bullshitting. The mm -hmm. marbling is so fine and so different. If you give me a steak and tell me it's A6, I can call you bullshit just by looking at it in two seconds. It's a completely different product. And yeah, there are a lot of things you put on menus because it sounds hot, it sounds sexy, it's day boat scallops, it's a 48-hour this, it's a Berkshire that. But there's a lot of wiggle room and not a lot of real ways to call anyone out on that. So, you know, as a chef, as a restaurant, restaurateur, as a menu writer, you kind of have to rely on your ethics on that one. I think that's a really kind of interesting conversation to go into is like food quality, right? So the yeah, Kobe, ethics, the, yeah, fo, or Kobe versus Wagyu, but then in terms of, you know, other steaks, have you seen like differences in grain fed versus grass fed or kind of what specific farms you're going to or what, where you're getting your product? You know, I wish I knew a lot more about the differences between like grain finish and grass finish and stuff like that. I will tell you that the farms you go to or make all the difference in the world. You know, Benoit doesn't eat factory farms. I don't think anyone should eat factory farms. Um, the shirt I'm wearing right now, another mm -hmm. little plug, Primal Meat Supply down on uh, Passyunk, mm -hmm. they get the most amazing beef from the best local farms, farms that really care about the animals. They're butchers that really, really care about how they butcher the animals and the products they put out. So yeah, when you're sourcing stuff like that, Kobe sounds great on a menu. I think a lot more people would get turned on by Kobe than, you know, Snake River Farms. But to be honest, when you're picking these great farms, like, that's really where the, the, the quality differential shows. You're finding good farms that take quality products and care about what they do. Not only is that going to get the best food, but it's going to make the chef's job a lot easier. Really, really good food talks for itself. Really, really seasonal local produce talks for itself. You have to do less to it. You can let really, really great ingredients shine on the plate. The better the product, the better the supplier, the better the dish, the less you got to fuck with it. And of course, a lot of these like fancy, sexy terms we're talking about are a lot of like marketing strategies. Yeah, 100%. and so so the reason why so for me it's easier for me. Of course, I flex a few times a year based on like my mom's saying, hey, I'm Korean by ethnicity, and my mom, so of course, Korean barbecue is in our DNA. Yeah. If my mom, for her birthday, she wants this very, very fancy 
whatever seasoned beef Korean barbecue for her birthday, I'm not going to be like, hey, hey, mom, fuck you. I will sit down and eat with her. But it's easier for me to, because over 99% of meat are from factory farming meat. Yeah. Of course, the supply that you just plugged earlier, they're one of the few stores that have connections with the dairy farms, family farms, yeah. local farms, who produce excess from high quality meat and produce. But it's easier for a daily consumer just to give it up entirely because you don't have to go through the... The, the gruesome uh, nitty pity and, and uh, filtering through the right sources, right? Sure. And so, so for me, I know personally that organic milk definitely tastes different from regular milk, oh, and it is a elevated taste. Like organic milk is like silk in your it's it's like liquid yeah. silk. It is amazing. I've had grass uh, fed beef before. I, I went on through this past versus regular fat beef. I know grass fed beef also tastes exceptionally amazing versus regular beef. So I, I know we're dealing with like terminologies like organic, grass-fed, case-free, uh, yeah. all natural, GMO-free, all these terminologies. Good local eggs are like, when you eat really, really fresh farm eggs, you realize like, you, this is like the first time you've eaten an egg. Like when you find, the very, like when you grow up on like whatever brand store-bought, totally factory-farmed eggs, and then you finally get like a big, beautiful egg from a farm, it's almost like you've never had eggs before because you realize like the ridiculous rich taste and texture that you're getting. That other thing was just a poor, poor imitation of that. So that's great uh, transition. So my mom, of course, my mom, she's a great home cook and she, she's a great mom. And so she cooks really well, different caliber versus you professionally, of course. But one tip that she gave to me is how to distinguish a real actual organic, a great egg versus a normal egg. Because a lot of eggs go through a hormone process, yeah. right? So they expedite the fuck out of that process. Yeah. So when you crack open an egg for that sunny side up or whatever egg in the morning, you look at the yolk color. So this is my mom's, I guess, uh, wisdom through experience, is if the egg yolk is very orange and dark potent color and you shake the yolk, if the yolk doesn't break, it's high quality egg. Yeah. But if the yolk breaks, once you shake the pan a few times and it's like this yellowish color, that's like Sapar regular, just like cheap bulk eggs. Yeah, that beautiful orange color when you get almost that dark orange and an egg yolk. It's awesome. Yep. So with that, I want to ask you, because we've been very focusing you as chef, as professionally, and you as a person, but what are some, because there's plenty of foodies out there, plenty of consumers and listeners who just love to cook and who just love food. And of course, food is a huge part of your identity. Uh, any cool tips that you can help us or help the listeners about their daily life, their cooking, picking groceries, any myth you want to debunk? I mean, when I cook at home, when I source my own stuff that I cook for my friends and family, I like local, I like organic. You know, you can go to a supermarket and you see local organic everywhere. I don't know how real that stuff is. My advice is if that's important to you, and it should be, like you should want to put better stuff in your body. Good fuel, good result. Like you're not going to perform at any task well if you're feeding yourself shitty fuel but if, if you want to go that route hit up local markets hit up farmers markets the the stuff that's organic coming from a humongous chain they can only be so organic like the shelf stability and the logistics process it can only be so great the the stuff you can go from like the head house farmers market the written house market you get some awesome product and when I cook at home for my friends and family, I like to do simple stuff with great ingredients. And it's just, it's perfect. Like awesome steak that tastes like awesome steak. Beautiful fresh eggs that are amazing. And local like bread that was made that morning somewhere from freshly milled flour. Like that's the stuff that makes food beautiful. You can put, 
you can put a truffle on anything, it'll taste good, but like, mm-hmm. find yourself some carrots that taste like carrots, man. Like, you, it's almost like when you really get down to these beautiful products, like I said about the eggs, it's like, you almost realize that you've never had celery before. Cause like, you eat this celery and you're like, holy crap, like I forgot how good just like a piece of vegetable can be. And then you, you make a beautiful salad, you don't have to put, you know, a ton of dressing or 8,000 ingredients. You're tasting just like beautiful, vegetables at their peak that's what it's all about you know? mm-hmm. what about any specific recipes that might be easy to make or that you personally love making the most like say you know a listener's having some friends over and wants to make an awesome meal anything that like can be made really well but that's kind of easy for the common person to cook my favorite dish of them all probably my last meal dish I was telling Ben earlier bucatini cacio pepe it's like standard Italian comfort food. It's um, bucatini pasta. The sauce is just made with coarsely ground black pepper. I actually chop the pepper with a knife because I like a really, really coarse mm-hmm. pepper. Butter, wa- pasta water. The water that you boil, the starchy pasta water you boiled into that. Mm-hmm. That with the butter and the peppercorns, that kind of becomes the sauce. Toss the cooked pasta in there, mound it with a fuck ton of really, really high quality Parmesan cheese mm-hmm. and it all kind of it's just like an easy, rustic, mm-hmm. almost Alfredo sauce. Um, that's It's easy. It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. It's cheesy, gooey, warm, carb, starchy, peppery, beautifulness. It's That's how you can make a lot of people real happy, real fast, and easy with that one. That's kind of my go-to. I think me and Kristen probably eat it once a week. We had it last Tuesday when you came over. It's That's kind of my favorite go-to comfort dish. Yeah, that sounds incredible, especially right near the Italian market. That's what I'm talking about. Hit that up for really, the really cheese. Really good Parmesan. You can, mm-hmm. you can buy the house-made pasta at a lot of places. That's a fun one. Um, but cook what you like, man. Don't cook what I like. Mm-hmm. Find something, that a dish that you, you want to... Find something that you want to make a great version of and make it, man. That That's the best dish you're going to cook for someone else, something that you're passionate about making. So I think that's a perfect point. So every time we have a guest on for episodes, we will love, and we always ask this question, so if Alec Lifshitz, the executive chef, right, at this prestigious company as a corporate chef, if you were to start your own mentoring program and you have a group of mentees you could mentor and guide with your profound wisdom and lessons, what are some of the lessons that you would give for people who are thinking about contemplating or trying to think about experimenting in a culinary world for some people who just don't know what they want to do or for some people who are just dead on and driven to be a chef? What are some of the advices that you have for those youngins out there? Keep going. Keep pushing. Keep doing it. Never give up. I know these are kind of very generic things to say, but like if you love it, don't ever stop loving it. Like, you're going to wake up feeling like complete shit some days. You're going to wake up and you're never going to want to cook again. Like, I say that shit in the kitchen all the time. I scream, I hate this place. I scream, I never want to fucking cook. Like, there are some days when you're just, you're done with it. Like, it, no matter what you do is bad, but you got to keep loving it no matter what. Like, remember what about it makes you happy. Cling on to that and just keep going. Keep doing what you're doing until it makes you happy again. Um... It's the passion, you know. We don't we don't do it for the money. I don't do it for the fame. They, I, you know, I think my girlfriend dates me because I cook, but I don't do it. To get, <laughs> I don't do it to get chicks. I do it because it's what I do. I'm happy when I'm cooking. Some like some days I'm not even. I cook an elaborate meal. I'm not even hungry. I just need to fry some chicken, man. I might not be in the mood for fried chicken, but I'm tense. I'm stressed, and I need to walk into my kitchen at home. 
get a skillet out of oil, dredge some fucking chicken and fry it. Like, I love it. I, I, I can't, it's hard to tell people how to love something the way I love it. But like, find something that you love that much. Find something that cooking can stress me out, yet cooking also relaxes me. Find something like that. Find something where no matter how bad it gets, that's, it's still good. There's still good in it. Like, I guess if I was mentoring people, it would be like, find the love and keep it going. And I want to uh, finish this by challenging you a little bit deeper into, so what I just asked you. So uh, I'm not even asking for some like palpable like skill sets that are looking for, but how about, do you have any like reality checks that you could give to people who maybe are entering the culinary world for the wrong reasons or what they thought they wanted because perception is reality, right? Yeah. You know, perception is reality, but reality is also reality in the kitchen. You talk about a reality check, there are chefs who are at the top of their game, they're going nuts, and then they let go, they give it up, and they, they, they think they can rest on their previous accomplishments, and their restaurants get forgotten in a week. Well, I mean, look at Georges Perrier. He was the top dog in Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s. Lebec Finn was the number one restaurant. It was the monolith of Philadelphia fine dining. And now he's got a couple of restaurants in the suburbs, but he, he kind of went through some sketchy shit and he kind of thought he could do whatever he wanted. He thought he had carte blanche in Philadelphia. And you know, now no, you know, he's he's still a legend, he's still great, but no, nothing is forever. It's did they say you're only as good as the last plate you put out. You're only as good as the last plate someone ate. So I could have nine Michelin stars, I could have awards, cookbooks, combinations, but if all of a sudden I put it, start putting out shit food in my restaurants, tomorrow no one will care who I was yesterday. They will be the guy who served me shit food today. So if you want to talk about a reality check, there's no past accomplishment in our industry that can make people accept you for doing something bad today. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep on... You can walk away with your head held high, but if you think that anything you've done in the past is going to have people love you today, it's not. It almost demands the constant improvement. Kind of, that's one of the first things you started talking about is getting better than who you were five hours ago. Yeah. Right? Constantly improving, constantly putting out a better plate than whatever you put out yesterday. Yeah. I mean, drive down South Broad Street in Philadelphia, you will see prime restaurant real estate with closed restaurants in the doors, places that have been shut down for a year. It's the, there are these great places and then all of a sudden they're just not that good and no one cares. They move on right on to the next restaurant. So the, a reality check to up and comers, you, you can't ever rest. You want to be good, you have to be good or better every single day or the fine dining or the, the the scene, the restaurant eaters, they will forget you. And it's I, I'm not saying they're being callous. It's how it is. It's a competition based industry. People mm -hmm. want good food. They're not. There's such a density of competition. It's all about who's the best today. I think the notion of complacency kills applies to almost everyone. But I think in your situation and in the field of culinary worlds, complacency literally kills. Yeah. And I think that's a great reality check that you, you gave all of and us. It's so rapid. You'd say complacently kills in culinary industry, it's sudden death. You get complacent for a week, all of a sudden you are old news. You're yesterday's paper. You know, you're just no one. And some guys never come back from it. Some people kind of, they forget and then they have a resurgence. But I don't want to throw any chefs under the bus, but I've seen it happen a lot in Philly. Um, 
I don't know how long you guys have been kind of eaters in Philly, but there are a lot of big, big name chefs five, six years ago, and you don't hear a peep from them no more. And I don't necessarily think it was by choice. What do you think are some of your keys to staying innovative or continuous? Like, how do you almost do like a reset to make sure that you're improving every day? Is it just like a perspective you personally take or, you know, do you try and get away a lot to almost like mash the reset button and come back with like fresh eyes? I don't think it's so much of a reset button as it is a constantly evolving thing. Um, I forget what huge corporation it was, like Ford or something or GE, I think it was actually GE, where I think every quarter fires the top low, lowest 10% of performers, highest 10% of people. That, I think, is how you kind of have to look at your, uh, your menus and the food you're putting out. Mm. Find the, the couple of things that you don't think are selling, that you think are a little archaic, gut them. Don't even, you don't even necessarily have to have a plan yet. Gut them, say I'm not running these anymore, force yourself to come up with four new dishes. Force yourself to keep it fresh, say, and I don't care if it's a low margin. I don't care if the top of my menu is selling 20 each a night and the bottom is selling 19. Dump those 19 and make yourself come up with more. So as we're wrapping up, uh, kind of from an executive chef, we're definitely curious. Both of us are real big foodies, as I'm sure a lot of listeners are. What are some of your favorite places to eat around? Kind of the inside scoop to the best food in Philly. I'm gonna hate myself for telling everyone to go here later, but Mike's Barbecue. Mike's Barbecue down in South Philly. The best, the best barbecue in the country might be in South Philly right now. It's uh, unbelievable, I'm there every single weekend. I, I love that place, me and my girlfriend would live there if we could. Um, I hope too many people don't go in the fly much longer, <laughs> but uh, love Mike's Barbecue. Also, if you, if, as far as modern French goes, my buddy just Chris just opened up uh, Forsythia down in Old City. Amazing, beautiful, modern French. If you haven't been yet, you're not doing it right. I, I can't tell you guys enough to go. I think both of you guys would have a great time. Listeners out there, man, you guys got to hit it up. He is the man. He's, he's as good of a chef and as good of a person as it comes. Love it. Good food, good people. That's what, I'm what it's about. Yeah. Uh, if anyone shows up to... The latter restaurant where Alex's buddy opened up, maybe you can drop his name and get that Alex uh, Lipschitz discount. <laughs> hey, but we would really like to acknowledge and thank you for your time. And you really share a lot of a profound, great wisdom that only select a few understand from the culinary world. And uh, we hope nothing but the best for you. And uh, thanks for sh- coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify every Monday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Follow us on Instagram at Discover More Podcast. And please share this with your friends and everyone that you know. Thanks for listening to another episode of Discover More, where we intend to discover more life through intentional dialogues. And we truly appreciate everyone who have made it until the end. Till next Monday.